Hey church, we are in a series called Soapbox Sermons. For the next few weeks, I've invited a few of my friends to come in and preach, specifically get on their soapbox and preach whatever God has laid on their heart for you in these weeks. This Sunday, we have a special guest, one of our own, Dr. John Pauley. John and Cheryl have attended GVF for a couple years now. John was a pastor for a number of years and then God called him into the academic world. He currently is in leadership at Eastern University. John is a man who loves Jesus deeply, serves in our men's ministry, and wears colorful socks. Let's give a warm GVF welcome to John Pauley. Paul mentioned the fact that I wear colorful socks. It's true. Um, I have probably three drawers of socks. Uh, the standard drawer is all solid colors, and no, then I have two other drawers with everything from palm trees to sharks. My daughter, who uh, was playing the viola this morning, is the one who gives me my socks. I don't think I bought a pair of socks in the last 20 years. So anyhow, and this is a true story. I mean, after all, this is church. I wouldn't tell a lie on, in this one. I, I invited my wife and my daughter into the bedroom last night, and I said, okay, I'm going to wear this shirt, I'm going to wear these pants, and I opened up the, the novelty sock drawer, and I said, okay, what sock should I wear? Well, we're very concerned about palette, you know, colors and things. I mean, some people wouldn't hesitate to, like, wear green socks with this outfit. Um, so my daughter is very color conscious, and so it had, the socks had to be black. Well, that, that limits things pretty severely. So I did want to show you that I'm wearing socks, and they're skull and crossbones there, okay? Brooke, I see you coming in back there. So anyhow... <clears throat> Um, it's all true. And, and everything that Paul says is true. Uh, the Apostle Paul and Paul Anderson. Um, <clears throat> the other th thing I wanted to mention was this soapbox series. Um, as I was preparing, I, I went downstairs to our laundry room and, and, and got my a box of soap. I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to do with this. I don't think standing on it would be a very good idea. Um, so I, you know, but I, let, 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 let it be said that I brought my soap box with me and it's right there. Oh, all right. Okay. So this morning I want to talk about um, the parable of the master and the three servants. Sometimes in the King James Version, I think, uses the phrase talents. Parable of the talents. That's misleading, I think, because a lot of us, when you hear the word talent, you're thinking about, you know, uh, music or uh, sport or something like that. You have a God given talent and you're supposed to use it. Talent was a word that, uh, that the King James translators used to describe um, a monetary unit. So I'm, I'm not going to use the word talent because I think it confuses us in terms of what this parable is about. But the parable that I'm preaching on this morning is found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. If you have a Bible, uh, you can go ahead and, and pull that out, and, uh, and we'll go from there. 
Now, I can't see you, uh, but God can, so I'm going to re- ask some questions, and uh, please feel free to uh, uh, raise your hand. How many of you have heard a sermon on this parable before? If you have, raise your hand. Again, I can't see you, but again, God can. All right. How many of you have heard a sermon on, the, on stewardship preached on this parable? If you have, raise your hand. Is, are there any hands raised? I can't see. Yes? I, I, all right. So, you know, growing up, I really believe that this parable was all about financial stewardship. I must have heard five sermons in my, my formative years about giving, about tithing, based on this text. Now, you can relax. I promise I won't preach on giving this morning and or, and or take a special offering. Uh, but it is interesting that we sometimes are sure that a passage teaches a certain lesson. And we are so confident that a scripture portion conveys a certain message that our eyes are blind and our hearts are not open to other possibilities. Uh, Paul mentioned in the uh, video intro that I'm involved in men's ministry, and I lead a men's small group, and I have now for several years. We meet on Wednesday nights, uh, or I'm sorry, Tuesday nights at the uh, Panera Bread in Gateway Shopping Center. And uh, guys, if you're looking for uh, a small group experience, uh, I would encourage you to check it out. Um, we, uh, We meet for an hour, 7.30 to 8.30 on Tuesday nights. It's a great environment, and it's a great place where I think guys anywhere across the spiritual spectrum can come and feel comfortable. Um, and so I'd encourage you to think about it. And as, uh, as we ramp up to the fall and uh, the ministry schedule and men's ministry, I'd encourage you to think about that. Okay, that was a shameless plug. Um, <clears throat> several years ago in the men's small group, we read about a book entitled In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. The author, Mark Batterson, uh, who is the lead pastor of National Community Church in Washington, D.C., offered a quick comment about this parable that really caught my attention and prompted me to go back and read and reread this parable. In In preparation for this message, it's been very interesting to read the glosses on this parable from the church fathers to the present day to preachers and commentators all across the centuries. So, what is this passage all about if it's not about financial stewardship? A look at the immediate context might be helpful as we move toward an answer to that question. Jesus spoke these words. Matthew situates them in the teachings of Jesus between the triumphal entry and Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. So, it's during that week. Jesus is teaching in the temple. And, and by the way, this is probably the peak of his popularity in terms of uh, people coming and listening to him. He's teaching in the temple, and after he concludes, Matthew records that Jesus is walking away when his disciples come up to him and call his attention to the temple buildings. I think that there's a certain pride there. Master, look at the temple, how beautiful, how wonderful it is. Now, Jesus' words must have stopped the disciples right in their tracks. He said to them, and this is in verse 2 of Matthew 24, Do you see all these things? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now it's interesting what the disciples heard when Jesus told them this. Notice their questions. 
Verse 3, tell us when will this happen and what will be the sign of our coming, of your coming, and of the end of the age? In response, Jesus launches into an exposition in which he prepares his disciples for what is to come, and he warns them about deceivers, international conflict, famine, earthquakes, false prophets, the abomination of desolation, which is a reference or allusion to the prophet Daniel, the sun being darkened, the moon failing to give light, and stars falling from the sky. The Lord brings this discourse to a uh, uh, this apocalyptic discourse to a conclusion with these words. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Jesus then uses a fig tree as an illustration, verses 32 and 33. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. And then he says something that a lot of Christians in my eschatology crazy generation have chosen to ignore. But about that day or hour... No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. We can't know, Jesus says. The angels don't know. Even he doesn't know at the moment that he spoke this. So since we don't know the day or the hour, what are we to do? Remember, we are to prepare. Well, one thing's for certain. We can't go about our lives in a business-as-usual manner. Jesus goes on to say in verses 38 and 39, For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Jesus then reaches a climax of sorts when he exhorts his disciples with his big idea or thesis. Therefore, he says, Keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And then as Jesus does on more than one occasion during his teaching ministry, he proceeds to reinforce the point with a series of stories. And here they are. Five different parables. The owner of the house and the thief in the night, the faithful and wise servant, the ten virgins, the three servants, and I use the word talents with quotation marks, the sheep and the goats. While each of these parables has a different point of emphasis, there is one common thread that runs through them all. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Jesus is preparing his disciples for what Stanley Hauerwas refers to as the time between the times. The disciples had already experienced quite a road trip with Jesus. And in the days immediately following this exchange, they would go through hell and back. Remember, Jesus spoke these words between the triumphal entry and Good Friday. They would see their Lord and Master betrayed, subjected to a mockery of a trial, and executed as an enemy of the empire. Those who didn't run away would see his beaten and tortured body hanging on a Roman cross. They would hear of his burial. 
they would see all their dreams and aspirations die. And then a few days later, they would see, hear, and even feel this same Jesus, risen, alive, and victorious over death. But nothing ever went according to plan, or maybe it would be better to say, or more accurate to say, nothing ever went according to their plan with Jesus. This risen Jesus spent about 40 days with them and then left them behind, right in the middle of the same mess they had walked through when he was alive. They would experience the same angry religious leaders of their own people, now not bent on silencing Jesus, but on silencing them. They would have to deal with the same Romans who were just as brutal and just as bent on maintaining the Pax Romana. Jesus was going to leave them, but he promised that he would return. So the question is, what to do in the meantime? And so, here we sit, 2,000 years later, and we're still asking the same question. What are we to do in the meantime? Hauerwas writes that in these parables, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the long haul. And so this morning, I'd like to talk with you about faith for the long haul. This parable about the master, the servants, and the bags of gold is all about watchfulness and being prepared for a day of reckoning. Most of us fall into the error of thinking that we, it will be a while before we have to give an account But that is a false notion. Indeed, life is short, and we never know when we will be called upon for a final accounting. But our lives are full of moments of reckoning, occasions when there is an assessment. As Paul mentioned in the intro video, I'm now involved in higher education. And one of the things we do a lot is to provide evaluation. Uh, we're talking about grades. There's, children have left the room so we can talk about this. One of the many benefits of grades, and you didn't probably think there, were any, there was anything beneficial about grades, one of the many benefits of grades on individual assignments and at the end of the semester is that it prepares you for this rhythm of life. You are given a task, and then you are evaluated on how well you have performed. Those of you who are in the corporate world have not, uh, are still used to this sort of assessment. There's that little matter of, the, of your annual personal performance review. Those of you who own your own business know all too well about this. Every time a customer comes in the door or every time you go out onto the work site or every time someone visits your website, you are being evaluated. And in this day of Yelp, TripAdvisor, GoodHousekeeping.com, ConsumerReports.org, and Reviews.com, and that's just a few. Evaluation of your craftsmanship or product is never more than a click or two away. So Jesus tells a story about a master who gave three of his servants a task. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey. Remember, this is the fourth of the five parables. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. 
To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one who had with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now we could spend a lot of time on the details of this parable and probably read a whole lot more into it than Jesus intended. Allow me to move somewhat quickly to what I think Jesus is getting at in this story. The servant who had been given five bags of gold and the one who had been given two bags of gold went out and invested their master's money and gained a 100% return on their investment. When the master came back and called these men to give an account, he is quite pleased with their performance. He says pretty much the same thing to both, to both of them. Good work. You have proven faithful in this small task, so now I want you to be a partner in bigger adventures. Let's celebrate together. But the moment of accounting is not so happy for the third servant. And now I'm going to quote from Eugene Peterson's The Message Translation. And this is what the third servant says when he's called to account. Master, I know you have high standards and hate careless ways, that you demand the best and make no allowances for error. I was afraid. I was afraid I might disappoint you, so I found a good hiding place and secured your money. Here it is, safe and sound, down to the last cent. The master was furious, Jesus says. That's a terrible way to live. It's criminal to live cautiously like that. If you knew that I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? The least you could have done would have been to invest the sum with the bankers, where at least I would have gotten a little interest. And then the master says, Take the bag of gold and give it to the one who risks the most and get rid of this play it safe who won't go out on a limb. Throw him out into utter darkness. Now I think uh, the reason why I've given you Eugene Peterson's message translation here is because I think he gets right to the heart of the matter. The difference between the first two servants and the last one is the willingness to take a risk. Because we read through this story in a matter of seconds, we are not thinking about the events that Jesus describes as they would have occurred in real time. The servant who received the five bags of gold took his master's money, and it was a sizable amount, and he put it at risk. Now, I am no expert on business investments in the first century, but if it was anything like it is today, there was some amount of risk involved, probably more so. Imagine that the servant put the master's money in Apple stock or real estate. In the short term, that five bag of golds could have shrunk down to three and a half or two, but the servant was a wise investor, and by the time the master returned, those five bags of gold had been parlayed into ten. The point is that this servant was willing to take a risk, something the last servant was unwilling to do. Okay, that's all good and fine, but this is not a lecture on investment strategies. What does this have to do with faith, your and my faith, as we sit here 2,000 years later asking the question, what do we do in the meantime? What does this have to do with faith for the long haul? 
maybe we want to ask a more basic question. What is the relationship between faith and taking risks? For many Christians, the honest answer is that there is no connection at all. For many Christians, the essence of the faith is self-preservation. Now, one of the other books that we studied in our small group was John Ortberg's Who Is This Man? The Unpredictable Impact of the Inescapable Jesus. The last three chapters of Ortberg's book are entitled Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Friday, the day that Jesus was crucified. Saturday, the agonizing day in between. And Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection. In the Sunday chapter, the Ortberg writes about what changed and what didn't change as a result of Jesus rising from the dead. He writes that what got released on Sunday was hope and that this hope created within the fledgling Christian community a belief about death that marked it out from the Greco-Roman society around it. The oldest law of Rome mandated that, quote, no body be buried or cremated inside the city. But Christians became comfortable with death, so much so that the bodies of departed saints could be, would be buried under the floors of church buildings and graveyards would surround many others. We, to this day, here in, in, the, in, this, in this area of Philadelphia, you see churches with, with cemeteries around them. That would be unthinkable in, <clears throat> in the first century in Rome. But Ortberg writes that, quote, over time, I, I jumped ahead here, hang with me. The oldest, um, Ortberg writes that over time, the issue of life after death sometimes replaced Jesus himself at the center of the faith of the church. And then he writes, Jesus sometimes becomes reduced to the vehicle that will get people to the good afterlife as long as they subscribe to the right religious affiliation. He continues, there was a dark side even to the vividness of the church's teachings about the afterlife. They were, once, they were often used, as they have been even ever since to this day, to manipulate people to become or remain Christians out of self-centered fear. Ortberg quotes Origen, a third century theologian and church father, as saying, quote, the literal terrors of hell were false, but should be publicized to scare simpler believers. Echoes of the third century can surely be found in the latter part of the 20th century and into the 21st. As a young man growing up in the American, in American evangelicalism in the 1960s and 70s, I was exposed to Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth, Maybe some of you in my generation read the same book. I'm still haunted by Larry Norman's song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. And I've lost sleep over the Thief in the Night movies. Now don't get me wrong, I affirm the Apostles' Creed, which says, I believe that Jesus ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. But when Jesus is presented as the fire escape from hell, we set people on the path to believing that following him is all about self-preservation. And when we start out 
Uh, and when we start out that way, it's not all that difficult to believe that the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. And when we sing about leaning on Jesus safe and secure from all alarms, it becomes difficult to conceive of following Jesus as dangerous and risky. But brothers and sisters, the parable about the three servants and the bags of money is that the life of faith, the faith for the long haul, Saturday faith, is a life filled with risk. So let's talk about the notion of risk for a few minutes. Scientists have shown that some of us, some of you sitting here this morning, are more likely to engage in risk-taking behavior than others. And the scientists have determined that what it is, in those of us who are real risk-takers, is the presence of dopamine. The more dopamine your body produces, the more likely you are to seek out and learn new things, as well as process emotions such as anxiety and fear. But dopamine is not the same thing as adrenaline. Our body creates adrenaline as a mechanism to help escape from danger. Some of us, the thrill seekers or adrenaline junkies, take risks. Think of running over the bulls in Pamplona, Spain, which is going on right now. I don't know if you've been following that, but a couple of Americans didn't fare so well yesterday. Bulls, two, Americans, nothing. Um, But people do that for the rush. I don't know if you've ever been in any kind of situation like that, but, you know, running down the road and here comes these bulls with sharp horns behind you. The rush that you get while running through the streets and even for moments afterwards, that, that adrenaline rush. On the other hand, dopamine is quite different. Imagine a man or woman deciding to climb Mount Everest or explore the Arctic David Zald, who's a professor of psychology and psychiatry at Vanderbilt, writes, quote, an Arctic explorer is, who's slogging through ice for a month isn't motivated by adrenaline coursing through his veins. Rather, he says that it is dopamine that is firing his veins. Or think about the men and women who explored the then-unknown American Southwest. Cheryl and I have been out to Arizona the last two summers and have visited the Colorado River at both the Grand Canyon and Glen Canyon, from Hoover Dam to Glen Canyon Dam, and from Lake Mead to Lake Powell. What is very interesting to me is the, is the man who navigated the entire length of the Grand Canyon, who charted out both the Green and Colorado Rivers, was John Wesley Powell. And there he is. John Wesley Powell was quite an unusual candidate, you would think, for somebody who would do this kind of thing. He was five foot six inches tall. He was a university professor. He was a, a veteran of the, of the Civil War who had lost a right arm in the Battle of Shiloh. But Powell was committed to exploration, to journeying into the unknown, to taking risks. He wrote in one of his journals that after his team had survived in small boats, numerous rapids and waterfalls on the Colorado River, that three of his men decided to call it quits. They would prefer climbing out of the canyons and taking their chances in crossing the desert rather than continuing on with the treacherous ride down the Colorado River. Powell wrote, quote, They entreat us not to go on and tell us that it is madness to set out in this place. 
But then Powell continued, to leave the exploration unfinished, to say that there is a part of the canyon which I cannot explore, having already nearly accomplished it, is more than I am willing to acknowledge, and I determine to go on. No doubt Powell and his companions experienced more than a few adrenaline rushes during their ride down the Colorado, but it was the dopamine that kept him going. He was bound and determined to seek out and learn new things, and he had the neurological stuff it took to process the fear and anxiety he felt on a daily basis. Now, why do I share this? Some of us are natural risk-takers. Some of you sitting here this morning are natural risk-takers. You're just wired that way. So some of you, when you, we hear that, the, that following Jesus is about taking risks, you're salivating at the idea. Yeah, I'm, I'm there. I want to sign up for that. At the same time, there are others of us, when we hear the word risk, we want to curl up in a ball. Our default position is to do everything we can to avoid risk. I just want to acknowledge that, that we may be coming from different starting points and dispositions when it comes to taking risks. But I want to insist that I believe that following Jesus is all about taking risks. For some of us, that is going to be more of a test than for others. But I think it's there's something more to it than just how much dopamine our brains produce. Let's stop and think about the anatomy or structure of risk for a moment. We all do daily calculations and we do them, or risk calculations, and we do them daily. There are all sorts of situations where we could play it safe or take a risk. When you were a child, you were presented with the option of sitting on the pool deck or jumping in. You could drown. Or you were presented with the choice of continuing to ride your nice, steady tricycle or riding on two wheels. You could fall and hurt yourself. When you got older, you had to decide whether you were going to just hang out with people uh, you already knew or whether you were going to take the risk of trying to make new friends. You could be rejected or ridiculed. And when you reached that magic age, you had to decide whether you were going to screw up your courage and try to meet that girl or guy that had gotten your attention, you could get your heart broken. And every day, if you stop and think about it, there are, there's mo- those moments where you play it safe or where you take a risk. So let's go back to our three servants and explore their reactions and calculations. I think the five-bag servant and the two-bag servant believed and were confident that the master would return. They believed that the course of history had been set, that things were trending in a definite direction, and that the master who had left them in charge had the power and the ability to return. In other words, they were sure they had absolute confidence that the master would return. The early Christians, the, best reader, the first readers of what we call the Gospels, believed that the death and resurrection of Jesus ushered in a whole new age that would end with his glorious return. N.T. Wright, in his book, Simply Good News, says that the good news the earliest church proclaimed had a past, a future, and a present component. God has brought life into the world in and through Jesus. 
This has already happened. One day, that life uh, will come completely and utterly to all creation, a new heavens and a new earth. This will happen. And what that we as humans, and this is what the, the early Christians believed, every single one of us, whoever we are, can be caught up in that transformation here and now. There is a future, there is a past, and you and I are involved in that present moment. So these servants who Jesus is holding out as those who are living out their Saturday, uh, their Saturday the right way are willing to risk what they have, what they have because they believe the future is certain. The master will come back and call his servants to account and their investment activity, even if it does not yield the return described here, will be a sign that they believed. In this one long Saturday, in this time between the times, Jesus calls us to a life of service, of watchfulness, of faith, confidence, boldness, and of taking risks to advance his kingdom. But remember what I said about grades and assessment. There is a rhythm of life. We are, going, we are given work to do, and then we are assessed. In the short term, um, we, you are most likely to uh, be beset by regrets of action. Have you ever had one of those moments when you said something, and then within a nanosecond after having said it, you thought, I shouldn't have said that. And you have, in that moment, a regret of action. I know I have, and more times than I care to remember. These are regrets of action, and we experience them with a certain degree of regularity. But then there are those moments, and a variety of things precipitate these, when we reflect on the last week, or month, or semester, or year, And what glides across our souls are regrets of inaction. Perhaps the quintessential setting for the expression of a regret of inaction is the stereotypical deathbed scene. I wish I would have spent more time with my family. According to Mark Batterson, the German author Johann Wolfgang von Goethe said, Hell begins the day God grants you the vision to see all that you could have done, should have done, and would have done, but did not do. Regrets of inaction, missed opportunities, sins of omission. Now, I don't know about you, but the church, the the Christianity that I was raised in as a child was all about sins, not of omission, but sins of commission. Depending on the strictness of your church, there were either the filthy five, the nasty nine, or the dirty dozen. Now, our church honed in on the filthy five. We weren't supposed to dance, play cards, Rook was okay, go to movies at the theater, drink alcohol, or smoke. Now, I remember thinking to myself how spiritual I was when we used to to have youth group discussions about these questionable things because I didn't engage in any of these forbidden activities. To this day, I am a recovering Pharisee. Please don't misunderstand me. Um, I am not advocating that we should throw off all constraints and live any old way we choose. No, we are called to a life of holiness, 
But holiness is a life set apart for the master's purposes. A life set apart for the master's purposes. I have become convinced that I should be paying a lot more attention to sins of omission, things I should have done, things I should have said. And often when I pray and ask for forgiveness, I will say something like this, Father, for being silent when I should have spoken, for sitting when I should have stood, for playing it safe and keeping my head down when I should have taken a risk, for sins of omission, I ask your forgiveness. Mark Batterson writes, maybe risk-taking is at the heart of righteousness. Maybe righteousness has less to do with not doing anything wrong and more to do with doing things right. Righteousness is using our God-given gifts to their God-given potential, and that requires risk. And so, my brothers and sisters, what are we to do in the meantime? It's long Saturday, waiting for the final Sunday. We cannot go about our lives in the business-as-usual mode. We cannot strive for a comfortable Christianity. We cannot, like the third servant, live a life of fear. No. There is much, much more to be done in the name of the Master who will return. Jesus pursued a risky path, and those who follow him, like the good and faithful servants in this parable, realize that we too are called to a life of risk. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for those times when we read and we are comforted, we are encouraged. We are renewed. We thank you, Lord, for those times when we read your word and we are challenged. A mirror is put before us, and we're asked to look at ourselves and see where we stand. Lord, forgive us for seeking a life of comfort. Forgive us for playing it safe. Forgive us for taking what you've given us and burying it in the ground. Oh, Lord, may we be people who, like the the two servants, were willing to take what you'd given them and to put it at risk to advance your kingdom. By the power of your Holy Spirit, give us that strength and give us that courage. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.